We know that organised people can change the world, but what happens when people organise their money? You might be in a membership organisation that draws money together, or you could donate to charity. Some clever people set up social enterprises that raise money to fund doing good. But what if you not only invested your money for good, but if that investment multiplied? What if we used the logic of venture capitalism, but applied it to the world of philanthropy? Today's Changemaker Chat is with Joshua Ross. Josh, along with his co-founder Adam McCurdy, created a not-for-profit that is doing exactly that. These two middle-class guys turned away from traditional careers with the hope that they could make a difference. They founded Humanitics. Humanitics took event ticketing and turned it into an organisation that could turn a profit for charity. Josh calls it venture philanthropy. Instead of relying on donations forever, initial donations to Humanitics were used as seed capital to grow a growing, sustainable resource for charity. We talk about why did he decide to do this? What allowed him to shun the comfortable corporate road usually taken by middle-class men like him? We also talk about how the idea found its legs. One of his big investors is Atlassian's foundation, run by co-CEO Mike Cannon-Brooks, a tech billionaire in Australia. Josh shares about how they've worked with the Atlassian Foundation. In reflecting on the success of that relationship, He explains how sharing skills and strengths between Humanitics and the Foundation has been as important as investing money. Organise people, organise money. Let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. Changemakers also runs an organising school where you can sharpen your skills to make change in the world. All the details are on our website where you can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. Okay, Josh, welcome to Changemakers. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Excellent. So you are a different kind of changemaker than some of the traditional social changemakers we have on. And so I want you to spend a little bit of time educating our brilliant audience about how you seek change in the world. Yeah, sure. So I, I was lucky enough to grow up in a home where I was encouraged to go out into the world and try and have a crack at changing it. And so for me, it's a recognition of the values that I was raised with that have enabled me to be in a position that, that I'm having a crack at it. And what particularly do you do? I run Humanitics, which is a, a charity and a tech platform. So we're disrupting the resented ticketing industry and turning all those annoying fees into sustainable funding for the things we care about. And also trying to reimagine how the, the industry can be more accessible for people with disabilities who typically have a really tough time with social inclusion and events. I do like that you're turning something that's really annoying to most people <laughs> into something good. That's like a that's a double win for change, I think. I, I think everyone who's ever engaged with Ticketek knows how annoying some of those platforms can be. 
So you mentioned that, you know, you came from a family that inspired you, encouraged you to be able to, you know, make change in the world. Tell us a little bit more. Not everyone who is an entrepreneur or is capable of of acting in the world of money chooses to act for, for social change and for the betterment of humanity. Why did you? Yeah. So, I mean, I think we're all a product of who we're around. Um, so, you know, my co-founder is also my best friend, but from a family perspective, my parents immigrated in the 70s from South Africa. And uh, so I grew up in Sydney. I'm Australian. Just a couple of the stories, the, the religious values I was brought up with in the home. So one story that stood out to me is um, my grandfather, who, I don't know what year this was in South Africa, but my dad told me the story of during apartheid, black people weren't allowed to be in certain areas without permits. And uh, my grandfather was quite a principled guy, very anti-apartheid, but was limited in personally what he could do to fight the system. But it was a situation where um, police rolled up outside the house and there was a gardener, I believe in the neighbor's garden, but I might be butchering some of the details here, a black gardener who didn't have the paperwork to be there. So the police stopped. They were engaging with him to ask him for his paperwork. And my, my grandfather walked out and um, recognizing what was happening. And this is a very confronting story for me as a kid walked up to the, the gardener and, and slapped him and told him to get back to work, understanding that the police would then think there's no issue here and drive on, which is what happened. And so the guy was incredibly appreciative and my grandfather felt terrible for having to do that. But just growing up in Sydney, especially on the North Shore, where everything's just easy and lovely, um, you know, it was quite a shocking realisation to, to think of my grandfather in that situation, the poor person who had to, you know, lose his dignity in that situation. But it, it instilled with me and, you know, my parents almost got arrested protesting while at university in South Africa. So they came here as soon as they could. They had no money, but they had a great education. And, and that kind of was the, you know, the image of, you know, small-scale heroism that I, I looked up as a child to my parents and grandparents with that definitely shaped some of my values. Adam, my co-founder, he's my best friend, and, you know, we share a lot of values and grew up in quite similar contexts. And so we've definitely encouraged each other along this path. So, so that's a pretty confronting story that, I mean... I, I wonder how your how your family telling you that story, how the 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 progressive values that you grew up with in your immediate family, how did they shape your thinking as you as you got older, as you became an adult, as you started to work out what choices you were going to do with your adult life? I think for me, hearing that as a child, like I'm very lucky, I haven't grown up with trauma, but you know, to me that was something that's etched into my memory for whatever reason. And I think trauma is the way we internalize things. And that was just a shocking thing for me to hear. And so that alongside the, some of the religious values I was raised with, um, even though I'm, I'm relatively agnostic now myself, uh, definitely shaped how I want to spend my time on this planet and, you know, a, a, a thought process around what really matters, especially as a teenager, which where I was heavily questioning the values I was brought up with and the religion in particular. And so, look, lots of people have really progressive internal processes, but you haven't just done that, right? You've taken those beliefs of the world and you've put them into action. Where did that transition happen for you? Where did the ideas turn into something you wanted to act with? Yeah, so it actually, you know, as many people are, if they're lucky to go to university, they're often at a stage of life where they're quite idealistic. And um, I live 10 minutes down the road from the university, so I just spent all my money traveling. Um, I lived at home. I didn't have a car. And uh, when I was traveling with my co-founder, Adam, of Humanitics, we were in Sri Lanka and we just had this amazing trip where um, we'd gone there straight after the Civil War had finished and just the best trip of our lives. And, and we were in this amazing moment where we were hiking and we'd found this blown out home. 
from the war and there were still mugs and everything in the house, but it was, it was also like had been severely damaged. We're sitting on the roof as the sun's setting and we start a little fire and uh, we're chatting and we're chatting about the things you chat about at that age. And, and for a lot of it was the anxiety of coming home and starting our careers and getting sucked into the corporate world and not really chasing the dreams we had. And so we, we made a, we reflected on it at that time and, and we came up with this theory that was a lot of people don't end up chasing their dreams because it's quite something to step away from a comfortable career. And uh, that loneliness of going out there when your friends around you are progressing in life, um, in inverted commas, in the sense that they're getting mortgages, they're settling down. If you suddenly at 28 step away and you don't have an income for a few years and you're chasing a dream, uh, that's quite a lonely journey, even if you happen to be successful, which is a long shot. So we, we, we said to each other, look, like the, the biggest risk we won't chase our dreams is actually loneliness. And so we pledged to each other that we'll, when we come up with a game-changing idea, we'll, we'll support each other and act as one. And that, that was really the tipping point because that manifested about six years later when we actually had a good idea around ticketing. We had a few ideas, ideas in between, but nothing worth talking about. And, uh, you know, so I, I had a, a, you know, a grossly overpaid job in, in a hedge fund and, and Adam was a, had studied engineering and was doing management consulting in tech. And so, you know, for humanities, it made sense for him to go full-time first because he knew how to, you know, much more how to build a product. Um, but I had this great salary. So we, we shared it on a handshake. We moved back to our parents' places for 18 months. And that's how we started. I'd work weeknights and weekends with him, but really none of that would have happened if we didn't have each other. So like, you know, yes, I'm grateful for my family, but I'm also very grateful for my friends. Wow. It's quite extraordinary that you were able to make that choice. What do you think, was it, was it the relationship with Adam that allowed you to pursue that bigger goal? I mean, it, you were at a hedge fund by that <laughs> stage, you know, you're, you're middle class, you're, you're, you haven't experienced trauma, you know, you've, you've got, you've had a great go at it. You know, I guess, it, it, was it the friendship? Was it, was there anything else that anchored you in the idea that you wanted something bigger? Oh, absolutely. Um, the friendship gave me the courage to do it and the teamwork has allowed us to achieve it. I guess it comes back to religion as a child. So I did a lot of questioning of what I'm supposed to be doing with my life as a teenager and uh, was lucky enough to be brought up in a home being told I can achieve anything and that I'm somewhat special. And, you know, and I do have a lot of opportunity being born where I am. But with that comes a moral obligation to, to give back. And I just, you know, from a, a late teenager age, I, I felt that I would not be content with my life if at the end of it I was looking back and, and I hadn't made a serious swing. And I was incredibly inspired by Muhammad Yunus as a student. I read, about, read his book, Banker to the Poor, which I highly recommend. Um, just an incredible example of flipping capitalism on its head, an old industry banking, but for the world's most disadvantaged people. And that really sparked a seed in my head. But it really comes back to religion, like this idea of hell, and that if you're lucky enough to be born into the right religion, then, then you go to hell. But a child who dies on the other side of the world from cholera, who's under the age of one, somehow doesn't go to heaven. Like, so I, I went on a search of a moral compass and I was trying to be cute about it. And I thought, well, what answer could I give at the gates of whatever it is, if there are gates, that kind of checkmates the creator and says, look, I didn't know which religion to pick, but this is what I did with my time. And so I got quite like obsessed with the concept of good and yeah. uh, morality and what is universally good, irrespective of which religion might be right. And, uh, and I'm very confident that um, while there's so many good things out there. Humanitics is inherently really good and I'm very proud to be a part of it. We're going to talk about humanitics soon, but do you think that that search for a moral compass, that desire to have a purposeful life, that stuff that, that really engaged you in your late teens is still with you? Do you think that that is what's <laughs> holding you now or is it something else that's holding you now? 
Yeah, it definitely is one of my biggest inspirations. I mean, to be 100% honest, like I love the people I work with. I ha- We've built the most incredible team and culture. It's actually fun doing what we're doing. I work hard and don't get me wrong, some of the nitty gritty of the role sucks. But if I had all the money in the world, I'd still get up and go to do what I do tomorrow. It would just be a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a lot easier with all the money in the world, for sure. So, look, let's let's turn to what you what you do. And, you know, you've talked about Humanitics as a particular product, but what I want to do before we talk about that, let's step it back to this broader concept of a venture philanthropy that, that you have talked about, that you, you refer to on your, on your website as well. I don't know if our listeners necessarily know what that means. Can you tell us what, what is venture philanthropy and, and how does it work as a, a way of making change? Yeah, sure. So in the for-profit world, we've got venture capital and for those who don't know, it's um, the high risk, high return part of investing where, you know, you're trying to find the next Google or Facebook and get in early. And if you get it right, you're expecting not to like make a 20% return. You're expecting to turn $1,000 into millions of dollars. It's just that highly leveraged, high risk, high scalability type of segment of the market of investment. And so venture philanthropy is the same concept, but you're trying to maximize your philanthropic return on capital. So that's how I think of it anyway. It's it's a pioneering area. Like there's, there's different ways to think of it. So you could say advocacy where you spend a million dollars but shift hundreds of millions of dollars is a form of venture philanthropy. It, it is. It's not necessarily a direct financial return in the same way venture capital would be. But that, that I think has a lot of merit. So it, it does exist. But what we're trying to do is quite unique in my mind because we're literally, our philanthropists have backed us with a few million dollars and they're hoping that we will tangibly ourselves spit out hundreds of millions to the projects that they would have funded. I mean, when you give a traditional donation to a great charity, you understand they have overheads. So you expect maybe 90 cents in the dollar to go to the front line to the cause area you're donating to. If you're lucky, if let's you're lucky. be straight, right? That's a great charity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, potentially. So in our scenario, a philanthropist might agree with us that young girls' literacy is really important, which is a big thing we fund um, in low-income countries. Now, they could give a million dollars directly to a project in India doing that, or they could give us a million dollars, and there is risk in that. But if we get this right, it might yield $40 million into that exact same frontline project. That's how I describe venture philanthropy. Yeah. And so it's quite, you know, I think our li- uh, I'm listening to it going, wow, that is different from classic so- social on- on enterprise and so forth, where you have sort of a-, a business that's making money sitting next to a charity. This is about massively impacting the amount of resources that can go towards philanthropic products by using, by setting up a, a company that sort of, sort of enables that tra- the transformation of that impact to happen by raising money. That's what we're trying to prove right now. But there's another element to it, which is imagine if Amazon had no shareholders and its mission was to save the Amazon rainforest, that would have been fixed <laughs> 10 years ago. <laughs> like technology. If only that was true. Oh, <laughs> jokes what a aside. Dream. Yeah, what a dream. But like, really, that, that, like, imagine if you had companies with that power that had no shareholders that were fixing social problems. So I don't see humanities as a redistribution model. I see it as building a, a force of change. And, and I want it to be as big and powerful as Amazon, but without shareholders fixing social problems. And that's a lot more than just the money side. So it's actually almost a different form of capitalism. Yes, it's on the moral frontier, I think, of capitalism. And, and it's, it's really interesting when you look at what incentivizes people and the fact that we've had no equity to give our staff because we're a charity, yet, uh, you know, we have top talent that could get a job at any of the big tech companies tomorrow. Yeah, so why do they stay? Because of the mission and because there's more than, ma- like, in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it doesn't have money at the top of the pyramid. 
and <laughs> they can earn an honest living with us and be proud of what they're doing and really make a difference and be part of an organisation that just does things differently. Yeah, fantastic. Let's get into it. So let's be specific about Humanitics. What is it? Tell, tell us about the specific example of venture philanthropy that you've done. Great. So you're running an event. You need an event ticketing platform to manage your event, sell tickets, etc. And so you can use a platform like an Eventbrite, which is a big one out there, or you can use Humanitics. If you use Humanitics, typically our fees are much lower and all our profits fund our amazing education programs. And you also know that in our DNA, in, our, in the innovations we're putting out there, we're 100% for purpose. So a great example of that is how we improve accessibility at live events. We're the first events management platform that is web accessible for blind people, for example. And so we had this beautiful case study recently where um, there's a group in North America called Nobility that the market leader there in web accessibility, they run their own conferences. They pitched philanthropists years ago to say, give us money to build an accessible registration platform because our, our, our people cannot use the other platforms out there got knocked back because that's not traditional philanthropy. There's no money for these ideas. We've done it. We teamed up with a bunch of disability groups in Australia. And so they found us through disability blogs. And now they have a, an event organized with vision impairments. So the first time in their life is running events independently. But it's more than that. It's when you're buying a ticket, the information you get, the breakdown. If you do design workshops with people with different disabilities, you'll find out the issues they have. And we haven't solved the problem, but we're an awesome step on the way to it. And it's a real example of that's not a problem Vision Australia, for example, could have solved on their own because as amazing an organization as it is, they don't have market share in events and they're irrelevant to the average event organizer. And so this is a problem, I believe, that can only be solved through ethical business. Yeah, so you need to be a public institution or a market player to actually fix a problem like that. And that's, and that's I guess, the space that you're saying. If, if venture philanthropy has a role, it's transforming the public institutions or industrial players that exist and making them more responsive, better to the communities they need to serve, like in this instance with disability. Exactly, exactly. So, but like if Vision Australia or someone else went and built an app that made your ticketing platform accessible, that's cool, but no one would download it because event organisers aren't focused on that. But you can build it into the product they're using anyway. And so obviously everyone who's listening to this, who's <laughs> every constituency who could imagine should obviously be getting ready to email you with their uh, with their suggestions for the ticketing systems that they want because you're so responsive, which is beautiful. But how? Do, how tell us about the process by which you were able to set this up. I mean, it was obviously passion and love and your, your, your friendship with Adam, but how, who invested and how, and how did that, how did it actually come to be? Yeah. So the first two years we kind of bootstrapped it. We self-funded it, but we're not, we weren't millionaires, so we couldn't, you know, take it so far, but then some high net worth individuals in Sydney, we got our DGR1 status, which for those who don't know, means it's tax deductible for philanthropists to fund you. And our pitch to them at the time was fund us now. You'll never have to fund us again. We need about a, a million dollars and we can get this to cash flow break even and then start spitting off millions to our projects. Um, and so, yeah, we got a few hundred grand. We got our CTO on board. We had some heroic people who volunteered and then went on minimum wage for a while. And, uh, you know, sweat and tears, we, we got lucky, won the Google Impact Challenge, which came with a million dollars prize money. Atlassian's foundation got behind us with recurring funding for three years. And alongside that was uh, targets we had to hit and we beat them. And we became self-funding in Australia within five years. And the rest is history. We're now in New Zealand, self-funding. We've just launched in America, not yet self-funding, but going really well. Uh, you can use us in a range of international markets. There's no investors though. So all of that was grant funding. There's no debt. There's, it's, a, it's a fully fledged charity and 
in pretty much every market we are. And so, you know, just to c- cover off this sort of venture philanthropy thing, like where do you see this going? Like you've got this product, it's working very well in in a series of markets. Like if you could wave your magic wand and all the right things happen over the next 10 years, where does it take you? Where does, it, where does this piece of change go? Yeah, so there's a couple of things I'm hoping to see in the next 10 years. One is we're scaling globally now, and uh, if we get this right, we'll be giving about 30, 40 million a year into education programs sustainably just from the ticketing stream. Then what else can we do? So we've also hopefully significantly improved the issue of social inclusion at community events for people with disabilities. That's a really nice example of tech for good as a direct impact. Third to that, we think there's plenty of other tech platforms that we could disrupt uh, with this type of model. Are you serious? I mean, are you saying suggesting that some of our technolo- technology companies globally aren't good human citizens? <laughs> are you saying that? Oh, my gosh, so outrageous. <laughs> well, well, this is why structure matters. I mean, I, I'm um, at the Impact Investment Summit next week. I'm running a, a group on tech, a panel, and uh, I always joke that um, imagine I'm standing up there giving you a pitch on a new venture philanthropy tech idea. Now, you know, social... People are disconnected. Mental health is a growing issue in it, around the world. Youth suicide, all these things. And we're increasingly on technology and disconnected. So I'm going to create a platform that brings everyone together and allows communities to connect and share information and engage. And it's called Facebook. And, and I want you to back my social enterprise. And 20 years ago, we would have all fallen for that. We did. Yeah. I think <laughs> would um, be the answer to that question. And so structure matters. And so what I really like about the who gives a crap model is it's a clear line in the sand on what they do to do good in the world. You know, Uber could have had the same pitch about it being a social enterprise and maybe conned a few investors into giving them a lower cost of capital because it's impact. But structure matters. Um, otherwise, and when you say structure, you mean that not one person owns it and owns it in their own interest. Is that what you mean, or w- w- tell, tell us what you mean by why structure matters? I mean that good is built into the defining documents of the organisation. So whether it's a constitutional thing whereby they have drawn a line in the sand that, like, who gives a crap? Half our profits go into great projects or humanities. We are structured as a charity. There are no investors. So we, we you know, that's not to say it could never be corrupted, but it's a pretty good structure to back. Where, um, to the contrary, if the shareholders is too distributed and it becomes a, sh- a listed company with fragmented voting rights, then fund managers just care about the next quarterly results. So even a beautiful idea for the world can easily be corrupted. Like there was merit to Facebook and Uber's pitch at the start, like Uber creating work for people between work, like taking traffic off the roads. You know, if that was a good structure, it wouldn't have corrupted to the point now where its model is only viable because it doesn't pay people properly. It doesn't give them human rights as labor properly. Like that's how the model works now. It's almost like, I mean, just to lean in on this, I mean, it's almost like this is the challenge. If you're going to be playing in the market space, there are pressures inside that sphere of public life that can make pursuing good hard. And it's like, I feel like from what you're saying, you're trying to work out like whether it's structure or other elements, what can companies or for-profit ventures or not-for-profit ventures, what can we bake into those institutions to keep them good beyond the will of someone at a particular time? Yeah, I mean, that's the ultimate question for all our structures, political structures too. But I think, uh, you know, Facebook's interesting because Mark has the voting rights. So, like, that based on how he wants to behave, that can be an amazing company for the world or a terrible company for the world. Similar with Atlassian, which I think are, you know, you can criticise them, you can throw stones, but I think they're a pretty good company and that's a great poster boy for how a listed company can be really good. And they have the voting rights and their foundation's very genuine. It's not flying helicopters around with branding on it. To, you know, their, their foundation is like a proper CSR initiative. 
uh, is sorry, not just a CSR initiative. It's you know what is doing with AGL right now is like real impact stuff. So I'm not against consolidated voting rights, but to your problem, I don't know how you protect that over time with succession. Yes, and I think lots of different approaches to social change would have different answers to that. You know, if you're a community organiser, you'd say you can never protect it, but what you need to do is have countervailing power to the power of the, you know, you can never have a perfect system, but what you can have is a system of countervailing power so people can push and prod over time. But let's turn to Atlassian. You've worked with Atlassian. Everyone's curious about Atlassian. I mean, what an interesting company. Mike Cannon-Brooks is doing interesting things. What has it been... What has it been like to work with them? How has it been for your organisation? What have they taught you about how to, to act as a, as a good company, as a, as, as, a, as a good corporate citizen? Have there been challenges in that relationship? Tell us more. Yeah. Well, the first thing I'll say is um, when we were initially doing Humanitics, Atlassian really saved Humanitics because we did it as a charity under the assumption that if it's working, rational philanthropists will back this idea. And we were almost failed because that assumption is the wrong assumption to make. Uh, we bounced around foundation to foundation who all said, sorry, this is a great idea, but this is outside our mandate. Um, because of course it's not in their mandate. This type of idea hasn't been done before. Mandates don't exist for this idea. Um, Atlassian was the first foundation that said, this is a great idea. It's not quite in our mandate because we didn't think of it, but our mandate was there to maximize impact. And we think you're a reasonable shot. We'll do our due diligence, but you know, we might have to change our mandate. <laughs> wow. And, uh, or, or at least be flexible within our mandate because this is different. And so, um, you know, super rational. Also in a great but position. Even not just rational, like from me, I'm hearing creative and yeah. open-minded and listening and, you know what I mean, rather than sort of assumptive and blocking and pencil pushing, which, you know, no offence to the philanthropists listening, but that can be the experience of Especially going, in corporate philanthropy. Yes. Uh, because yeah. what you're describing is something really different. Yeah. I mean- they don't like, so another thing, when they backed us with three-year funding, they didn't want to do press on it. We did. We were like, please, to be associated with that last <laughs> stage of our journey will give us credibility. Yeah. And so they agreed that we could do some PR, but that is so different to every other corporate philanthropy. So like that foundation there is free to do what they can to maximize impact. They're not a marketing arm of the business. And that translates into the way they help us. So they're not just money for us. We've spoken to you know, their cybersecurity team who have tried to hack our platform and then help our developers plug anything, best advice they've given, which has been incredibly valuable over the years. Their treasury department help us negotiate our credit card merchant rates. Their lawyers help us. Their, their developers help us. Their designers help us. And we're a unique opportunity for their staff to volunteer because usually a, you know, MIT engineer who's now at Atlassian volunteers at a charity and paints a wall. Great yeah, use I of know. their time. Where with us, they can use their skills. Yeah. It's been a really cool journey. And that is interesting. So you're talking about a different, like 3.0 philanthropy at the moment is about that kind of partnership model where it's not about throwing a, throwing a check and getting a report in two years time, but about a partnership to produce something new. That's what I'm hearing from you is it's not just about a partnership where someone comes and, sit and sits on an advisory board, which is often how that 3.0 philanthropy works, but actually it's a skills transfer between the two organisations. That's interesting. That's that's a development. Tell us more though, right? So at Atlassian, they're doing all this interesting stuff around climate. You know, Mike Cannon-Brooks, I think, has managed to piss off a whole bunch of people and excite a whole bunch of other people around doing things in a sort of novel way. Um, how has that been? Has there been a politics to the relationship too? Actually, not for us because the foundation is has an education mandate. And so Good Mike's work. Follow the charitable rules, humanities. <laughs> so um, Mike's uh, personal, I think uh, Mike and Scott, um, look, I don't know them well, 
like I've met them both once in passing at events. So I, I, I'd love to have a relationship with them, but they're so busy and, and, you know, we're tiny in terms of their foundation, the corporate foundation, but the corporate foundation's arm's length. Um, and so it's, it's got an education mandate. There's never been any of that type of, uh, angle or pressure on us. Um, to the, uh, it's actually quite a symbiotic relationship because we don't have the scale to research education at the level they do. So we piggyback off a lot of their impact reports and their recommendations on what should be funded with our profits. That's the extent of that. I mean, with the with the environmental stuff, like I'm a massive fan of what he's trying to do. And for those in the audience that don't know, AGL is our biggest polluter, over 8.5% of our carbon emissions. That's more than every car on the road in Australia. And he's trying to invest $20 billion into renewables to shut down their coal plants early. But with the public commentary that they will not pull any capacity out of coal until they've got enough renewables up such that it doesn't affect energy prices, which would be a disaster. So it's like the best decarbonisation project this country's ever seen and can see because AGL's the dirtiest coal emitter, uh, the dirtiest carbon emitter in the country. So I'm praying that he gets it through. And um, yeah, I'm a massive fan, but it's totally unrelated to humanities and and their foundation with us. And, you know, I'm sure you're going to want to talk about this on air, but, you know, I'm interested in the challenges of those philanthropic relationships. You're a not-for-profit. You've said that all your startup resources came from grants um, and now you're quite able to sustain yourselves through the actual business of what you're running. But, you know, there are always limits that come with philanthropy. It's beautiful and it's challenging. Have you got any, have learned any insights about what works or doesn't work in terms of that as a model of funding? Yeah, so we needed a very quick road to being cash flow positive. Um, otherwise, this wouldn't have worked because there's not deep pockets in philanthropy that will back models like ours. And maybe that will change with if we're successful. But um, for me, the lessons were, I mean, firstly, you, you, I don't think you can scale a social enterprise unless your product's better than the incumbents. And so that's always been our approach. And that's very hard to do. But there, while we have a disadvantage in access to capital, we get an advantage in access to, to people. And so people have helped us along the way. That never would have helped me while that is starting a for-profit ticketing platform. The amount of brand awareness we get, the write-ups, the un, the earned media you get. The ability to come on cool podcasts. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, John Hills came on as our ambassador for free. Like Australia's greatest Wallabies captain ever gave us a massive write-up in The Australian. Like he's just been a champion for us. Stuff like that. So th- there's disadvantages and advantages. But, you know, if you look at a lot of business models, even if you're successful, require more capital as you're successful. If that's your model, you probably can't go non-for-profit unless your dad happens to be a billionaire or you've got that type of backing. But it's really hard. And so we've really struggled. We could have grown a lot quicker if we, potentially, if we weren't a non-for-profit. And so it's been a trade-off. It's it's been hard. I don't know what the right decision is there. My ultimate goal is to maximise impact, not really just about structure. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm just wanting to turn to the question of technology, right? So there's a lot of excitement about technology as a sort of fix-it for the world. And we see that a lot in, in the climate space, right, that, that people are looking to technology to fix the climate crisis. And you're a technology company, right? You're, you're playing in that technology space. But technology has also got its limits too. It's got a complicated relationship when we just think that we can plonk technological solutions on beautiful communities and think that it's all just going to work well. What have you learned about the sort of promise and limits of technology and how have you sort to, to manage that and go, go make sure that technology isn't, isn't wrecking community power and community relationships? It's a great question. So far in our journey, we're not bringing ticketing to people that aren't already using a solution. So ours is quite clean in the sense that like there's an incumbent there that does no good for the world. We're replacing it and making it good for the world. 
we haven't invented something new that's permeating through society that might have negative externalities that we didn't foresee. In the projects we fund, look, there is an element of... Uh, so in America, for example, we've teamed up with Code.org. They uh, teach computer science and STEM literacy to disadvantaged kids around North America and, and different parts of the world now. They're not just plopping iPads in kids' hands and being like, cool, now you're tech lit. Uh, it's, 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 uh, it's really, they actually, more than half of American kids now are using their solutions and they're helping states rewrite their curriculums so that they're more relevant and applicable. So it comes down to picking the right partners on the front line. But in Australia, it's our impact on the education side has nothing to do with technology. We're helping indigenous kids get access to, to high quality schooling or education when they may not be able to in remote areas through indigenous groups with the support of their parents and community and families. Um, and so for us, it's not such an issue, but I hear you. I, I hate what technology in, in some ways is doing for society. Yeah. If it's tech first and not people first, we get a problem. I mean, I, I, I you know, in your, in your defense of your model, I, I kind of feel like what you've done with the blind and disabled community to sort of cr work with communities to create a new piece of technology is like the way forward. Cause I'm not here to be a Luddite. Like we, technology is a part of our world and it's an important thing to embrace. It's more a question of how it's done. Well, part of the vision with Humanitics was there are great exceptions, but the non-for-profit sector generally sucks with technology. And there's some good reasons for that. Uh, one is that most of their boards are stiff old people who don't understand technology. Maybe they're on there because for reputational reasons and guess what? Technology is high risk. So if a big charity with a few hundred million dollars has a crazy idea like Humanitics that's going to cost $10 million to trial and is a 10% chance of success, but the payoff's so big that it's worth it, well, you're going to look really bad when you most likely dust that capital. And so boards are conservative in the nonprofit sector because you're dealing with donor money and there's a lot more than just what makes sense to deal with. Secondly, they're competing with the Googles of the world to attract developers really hard. So the non-profit sector doesn't have, in my mind, the biggest tool of change to fix social problems. So that's part of what we're trying to address because technology is not inherently good or bad. It can be either. But it's really a shame for the world if that's all, if the only people using technology is the for-profit world and charities are left without that incredible tool. Mm, so you become a bridge, but you know, in a sense, like you can become a place that houses technological skill that builds a, a bridging relationship to those who, for whom it's too high a risk to be engaged in yeah, when, tech. When we started Humanitics, we, we didn't have the money. So we went to some big charities in Australia and said, will you incubate this and all the profits can go back to you? And they all said no. And they were crazy. Like, they should have said yes, or measured on the merit of the idea at least. But it's just, it's, it's too risky, which is the wrong framework for them to be thinking through. Yeah, and, and for better or worse, that's the structure that sits underneath charities, right? You know, in terms of their responsibility for being sticking around is that they've, they've built a structure that has some level of risk aversion. There's a, there's a method to the madness, but the consequence of that can be that we, we don't see a lot of innovation and change. Yeah, and, and there are great exceptions. I think in some areas of charity, it's inherently there, like in medical research, it's clinical trials are hit and miss and high risk. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not to, so arrogant as to say where this, you know, we're the first or the And there's only. some good stuff in advocacy <laughs> as well, right? Yeah, like absolutely. there's brilliant advocacy organisations that, that, that lean into tech, but there's space where more bridges could be built, I guess is what you're saying. And there's cool apps and things happening in different fringes of the charity market, but, but there's no follow-on capital to scale them generally. Interesting. Let's just sit back and reflect. This is a podcast that's about social change and some of the strategies that you use in the work that you do aren't new. You know, the beauty is, is that social change is an old beast and some of the principles and practices are, are old 
and you're repurposing them. And then also there's some of what you do that is new that has a lot to teach old strategies about social change. I'm wondering if you can reflect, is there something in particular in the work that you've been doing in in your work in setting up this organisation that is an embrace of something that actually was around a lot older? And then the reverse, maybe in addition to the tech piece, something that you think that Humanitics is doing that can really have a legacy for for those working in social change? Yeah, that's a big question. Um, So... Uh, one of my big inspirations is Muhammad Yunus. And that's, you know, you can call microfinance now an old school idea because it's been around for 30, 40 years. But, uh, you know, incredibly innovative flip of a thing we were already doing on its head. But having said that, when you look at back at most social change movements that have been successful, like freeing women to, you know, economic liberation, like around that was technological innovation. So, you know, contraception was a massive thing play in there. And it wasn't just good people saying good things. It was a combination of technological changes around them that enabled that time to be the right time for that progress. World War II allowed yep. women to go to work because men were at war, for instance, yeah. another one, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, slavery and economic interests, like they, did, they culminated at the same time for, for the right reason, slavery ending. So with that, what we've tried to learn from that is with humanities, you can't just win on principle. It can't just be use us because we're the good guys. You can't charge more to do the right thing because then most people won't do it. So we've always been product first. We want to create value for event organizers. We want to be the best platform out there at the best price. That is a good commercial decision because if we get that right, the impact will happen. But if we hey, use us because we're the cute, nice charity guys. Well, we might get the super hippie people. We might get the super ethical or super rich people, but the big middle won't change. And so, we'll, you know, we'll be a cute idea. We might get to speak at a few things, but like it's not going to change the world. And so that's something I've learned from historical change makers and movements. Yeah, that's an old idea. You're gonna, you want to stand for the whole. You don't yeah. want to stand for the fringe in terms of building a product. And, that's, and that is, you know, you might as well be speaking out of, you know, a community eyes, organisers, vocabulary say the same thing right they want to stand for the whole or a community or, or an organizer working in climate change which is that they want to move the middle not necessarily the the edges right it's why i'm really proud like when you go on the humanities platform you'll find events of all shapes and sizes and colors like you know mardi gras was just on our platform but we've also got christian private schools and government labor and liberal use our platform why because everyone agrees it's good pretty much everyone agrees in children's education and so you know and we we want to change the world with this idea we need everyone to use it and so it's really cool you got big music festivals the hedge fund conference like it, it's so diverse cool and so and then what's <laughs> so, so we can see how you've applied those old principles of organizing or social change to to make your business more successful but when you're not for profit more successful i should say what about the other way around? Is there is there more than just broadly that you bring tech to this to the world of social change? Is there something more specific that you've learnt that you're creating that's new? Yeah, look, I wouldn't say we're the only ones with this, but I'm hoping that people will learn from our journey. If you're passionate about social enterprise, you know, it's cool like if you can buy a shirt that's not from a sweatshop from a social enterprise. But it costs more because of high labor rates. And so there's an ethical premium. And so only some people will do that. Um, if you can find a way to bake into your social enterprise a no-brainer win-win, then I think they can scale really quickly. So like, you know, the be- uh, to me, the best social enterprises have that. Like when you, I think the best social enterprise in Australia is Good Start Early Learning. And for those who don't know that case study, I highly recommend reading up on it. It's amazing. But they don't- Childcare. Yeah. Childcare <laughs> for people who don't know which industry. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Um, they don't charge extra because they're the good guys. And so, you know, they're having massive social impact at scale. So I'm hoping that we can be, you know, we really bang the table on that. 
I think the other one is um, from a world of philanthropy. Like, this is a very left field idea, and I'm hoping that we'll have an amazing philanthropic return on capital. And for the next social entrepreneurs that have an idea like this, when they're banging on the door of a foundation, there'll be more case studies because people want to look good and back things that work. And, uh, you know, a lot of people didn't understand what we were trying to do. And that's probably because we're not good at explaining it back then. But also we didn't know exactly where it was going. And so, you know, there's a big focus on impact measurement, but it doesn't always make sense. If you were looking at Amazon on day one as an investor and you measured it as a book company, you missed the whole picture. And like, you know, if you measure Humanitics as a ticketing app, like you're missing the picture. And so I'm hoping that um, we're reimagining what a charity can look like. And we do hear from other people who want to do this in insurance or telecoms or other industries. I'm, I'm hoping we can make that path easier. And, there's, and we're not the only ones. Like the thank you people. The, you know, there's lots of great social enterprises out there doing amazing things. Well, we wish you well. I'm interested to see how you can transform how our big companies and public institutions work <laughs> by, by creating better ones that are actually doing work for good. It sounds really exciting. Thank you so much for coming on the program, Josh. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all of our episodes. And we're in season six, so there's plenty to enjoy in our back catalogue. Changemakers is produced by Lachlan Hodson. Our audio producer is Jules Wookerer. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast. Find us on Twitter at Changemakers99 and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. And don't forget to take a look at our organising school if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking.